Well, good morning and welcome to Crosspoint. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We are uh, grateful that you're with us this morning. Uh, here in a few weeks, we are going to be gathering here on Good Friday in that evening service at 7 o'clock. Uh, we're going to combine with Eureka Bible and uh, celebrate and remember the cross that evening together. We've been doing this uh, last couple years, and I, I always appreciate two local church families uniting, especially around communion, around the cross, and so that's going to be happening here. And then Easter morning, uh, 10 o'clock, uh, family service, a time for us to celebrate Easter together as a church family. So uh, make plans to be a part of those. Our First Impressions team is going to be handing out the connection card booklets. This is a key way for you to communicate with the church leadership and staff as far as how we can pray for you, how we can encourage you with next steps the Lord has called you to take, and those kind of things. And so uh, if you're a guest with us, fill out that gray section. That will help us keep you in the know on what's happening around here. One of the things that's upcoming Saturday night, March 10th, this coming Saturday night, is a fundraiser for a, uh, the mission team that is uh, traveling to Guatemala on, uh, on spring break. And so uh, it's a fundraiser, a euchre tournament. Do you know how to spell euchre? Raise your hand if you know how to spell euchre. It's not, oh, brother. <laughs> I was afraid of that. Well, before it showed, did you know how to spell euchre? Okay. If you know how to spell euchre, you're invited. If you've never heard of the word euchre, you're invited and you don't, you don't even have to play the card game. Uh, there's spaghetti and there's ways for you to, uh, to serve and raise funds in that way too. So uh, if you know what left bower, right bower, those kind of things, or if you know, have no clue what the words I just said, uh, you are invited to come that evening and uh, partner with that mission team. All right? Uh, if you have a Bible, get to uh, Galatians 2. If you don't own a good Bible, then please uh, get one at Guest Connections. Uh, afterwards and take that home with you. Let that be our gift to you. In there, you will find encouragement about where to start reading, how to start reading the scriptures, and how to be engaged in the word on a daily basis. Today, we begin a new series called Moving Toward. It's a, it's a four-week series that aligns with the Gospel Project, with, which uh, aligns with what Sun Chasers is going through. That takes us up to Easter, and then after Easter, we begin a new series called Once But Now, and that, short of a couple weeks, aligns with the Gospel Project as well. And so make sure you get a study resource to go along with that. But the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at passages in the New Testament that help call us to a way of life in Christ. They help us see the people that we are to become by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. God's people throughout Scripture are a people on the move. We move and live by faith, and we are a people who should be moving toward or growing in our Christ-likeness. So today we're talking about moving toward faithfulness in the gospel, that we would be a people who, who are growing in our understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and that we would live a life of faithfulness to the Lord. One role of a pastor is to shepherd people, to care for, feed, protect lead the sheep, the people who have been entrusted to the flock. And as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, I desire to be faithful to that role for as long as the Lord would have me here, to shepherd in the way of Christ over the course of years. And here's what we know about ourselves. Either we've seen it in our own lives or in the lives of others, is that we know it is possible that we deviate from the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and how he has called us to live. To deviate means to depart from an established course. 
So we know it's possible that we stray and wander where once we were in step with the truth, that we've gotten out of step with it. Or in the analogy of sheep and shepherd, that we know it is possible for us to find ourselves wandered away from the lush green pasture of the gospel and and living or trying to eat off some barren dead pasture in some other place departing from the truth. The longer you're a Christ follower, the more likely you are to see people deviate from the truth of the gospel. Like for those of you who are married, when you got married, there were probably people around you following Jesus and uh, trusting in Jesus. And if you've been married 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, what happens is you see people's lives over the course of years potentially deviate from that truth. High school, between freshman year, senior year, let alone post-high school, you begin to see the fruit of people's lives. You begin to see the, the strain and the wandering that is possible, not only in your, in your own heart, but in the lives of those around you. Because if we're honest, we th- see that temptation in us. Some of you are here and you're like, that's me. I have wandered away. I have deviated from. I am out of step with the truth of the gospel this morning. The Spirit has exposed this wandering You've been lured away by temptation or you found yourself isolated from biblical community and you're in some pasture that doesn't lead to life. Maybe we've seen that in our past. I know I have. I have seasons in my walk with Christ where I have deviated from the truth, gotten out of step with the gospel. Maybe it was coddling up to sin and not killing it. Maybe it was forgetting that in Christ there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And instead, falling into the temptation of listening to the whispers of condemnation about my previous sin or past. Maybe it was that that I just was unloving to someone who the Lord is calling me to love. If you're a Christ follower in here today, or you will be someday, we're in it for life, right? He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. Romans 5.8 says, but God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He first loved us in such an extravagant way. He reached down, pulled us out of our sin long before we ever reached out to him. And when he has saved a human heart and soul, we then respond with gratitude, thanksgiving, love, worship. We spend the rest of our lives living for the sake of the one who died and rose again for us and no longer for ourselves. And today in Galatians 2, we see how someone, Peter, has gotten out of step with or deviated from the truth of the gospel. And we're going to see Paul confront him on this. Because here's what Peter was missing and what we miss as well. When we stray and wander, you know who that affects? Those around us those who follow us. What we notoriously underestimate in this life is how others are following us. And I don't care who you are. I don't care about your job, your marital status, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, what your age is. If you're living and you can hear my voice, people are following you. And when we stray and deviate and depart from the truth, it will lead others to do the same exact thing. We'll see it here in Galatians 2. 
whether it be the generation that follows you, your peers around you, or the generation that precedes you. In this passage on Galatians 2, we're going to see one shepherd call out another shepherd. Because it was not only affecting Peter's life, it was affecting those who he was shepherding, those who he was leading, those who were following him. So for the sake of Peter, as well as those people, and for the sake of the Lord, Paul is going to call this out in Peter's life to bring Peter back to faithfulness in the gospel, to bring him back to what he says he believes, but his life has gotten out of step with. My hope and prayer is that as we look at this passage and story, that we'd be encouraged to not deviate from the truth. And where we have, that we'd be open to the Spirit's work in us, bringing about a sweet spirit of repentance in us, a sweet spirit of teachable, uh, teachability and humility. That we'd be encouraged as Christ followers that, that this is a community project, that we help one another we're alongside one another so that we would be faithful to the gospel. This is not isolated, on our own kind of activity, but we follow Jesus together, and we see that happen here in this passage. Most scholars believe that this event took place prior to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. Uh, Pastor John preached on that three or four weeks ago, and so uh, if you remember that passage or if you were there that Sunday, you will see similar themes being talked about both in, here in Galatians 2 as well as Acts 15. We'll start in verse uh, 11. <clears throat> but when Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul writing. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from, ja came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated, separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Antioch was a church that, that had sent Paul out on that first missionary trip. And this, uh, that's, that missionary trip probably happened again prior to this event here in Galatians 2. But the church at Antioch was diverse. Most scholars believe that it was probably 50% Gentiles, 50% Jews. And in Acts 13, when you read some of the leaders, the names of the leaders, you see that this church is diverse. It's got uh, leaders from multiple continents, including Africa. And so the Antioch is made up of both Jew and Gentile who are no longer finding their identity in those things, but finding their identity in Christ. And here is Peter withdrawing and separating himself from the Gentiles. So what's happening here? Well, earlier in the timeline of the New Testament, we looked at this back in January, but in, in Acts 10, Peter gets this vision from the Lord, and the gist of the vision is that the gospel is to go to the Gentiles. It's this vision of a sheet coming down with four corners, coming down with all a bunch of hooved animals on it, and the Lord says to Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 I, I don't do that. I'm a Jew. I don't eat those animals. I'm not going out this way. This must not be from the Lord. And long story short, the Lord is trying to give Peter a vision that the gospel is to go to the four corners of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And the gospel is to go to the Gentiles, not remain just with the Jews. And so the Lord is telling Peter, uh, it is not food that makes someone unclean. 
Sin makes someone unclean. And the Lord has the power to make someone clean who was once unclean. So the gospel message is for all. It's all tribes and tongues. And this is the picture that the Lord is giving to, to Peter. And, Peter. and he tells Peter, you're going to share the message with this Roman centurion named Cornelius and his family. And what Peter experiences in Acts 10 is that the gospel goes to this family, Cornelius and his family, they, they receive the gospel, they receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, the Lord no longer shows partiality or favoritism. This is not the Lord. This, is, this was my heart, but this is not the Lord's heart. So God is not one who shows favoritism or partiality, and the gospel is to go to both Jew and Gentile. This is what Peter saw. And as a result... He eats with the Gentiles. He fellowships with them. He gathers around a table with them. He is in their homes together. Overnight, hospitality is happening. So he's enjoying all the deliciousness the pigs have to offer suddenly. Right? He's enjoying lobster and shellfish for the glory of God. Surf and turf for the glory of God. The table for meals, it was the central component of fellowship in that day. In our day and age, we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of that. Now, I sense just a, a kind of a, a, a rearing back or bending back toward the table being primary to our way of life. But we've gotten, because of speed, because of schedule, we've kind of gotten out of step with that, whether it's God's people or just our individual households. The table was central to their lives of faith. We see that in Acts 2. When they broke bread in their homes, they gathered around tables. But if you gathered around a table with one another in that day, it meant that you were equal with one another. We're among one another. No distinction between Jew and Gentile, but instead simply the, the distinction that we are in Christ. Remember how Jesus was rebuked for eating with sinners and tax collectors? Because the table was more than just a piece of furniture. The table meant fellowship. It meant evangelism. It meant hospitality to the stranger. And since Acts 2, Peter had been gathering around tables with not just Jews, but Gentiles. And in this case, all those who are in Christ and who were calling this church in Antioch home. But then something changed. Jewish Christians show up at Antioch and we and we read that Peter feared those people. And as a result, he pushed his chair back and quietly withdrew. He separated. Because for this, this little pocket of people that showed up, they were saying, if you're going to be a Christ follower, then you also must follow the law of Moses. So you've got to become Jewish. You've got to follow the diet. You've got to get rid of your bacon, your pulled pork, and your lobster. You've got to get circumcised. The pocket of people here, they were looking down on the Gentiles as if they were second-class citizens or less than. They're saying, I'm better than you because I'm a Jew. I'm more clean than you because I'm a Jew. Even though we share Christ, my ethnic heritage puts me at greater human value than you. See, racism is not new. And it didn't begin in Galatians. It began in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. And suddenly we have this sin nature, this disease that wants to promote us, wants to lift us up, wants to be self-centered,
proud, me-centered world. world revolves around me and my identity. Peter and the Jews that had arrived in, that, in, that, uh, in Antioch, they're acting in racist ways, not eating with them, not sharing a table with them. We're not equal with you. They can eat in the other room at their own table. And instead of unity in the gospel, this group of people is bringing about division and separation. But Peter, he should have known these actions were not in step with the gospel. He experienced Acts 10. But we read in verse 12 that Peter feared this group of people, and so he withdrew. He suddenly acts as if he never ate with them. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't like that kind of food. I, I never ate with them. What are you talking about? I, I, no, 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 I didn't do that. Peter placed his fear of man greater than his fear of the Lord. And any time that's the equation. Fear of man greater than fear of the Lord, it will equal being out of step with the gospel. When we are governed by fear, we are going to be more swayed by social pressure than the leading of the Spirit, and we will notoriously deviate from the truth. Peter placed what culture thought as greater than what the truth of Scripture taught. See, Scripture is our authority. Otherwise, listen, there's no objective truth. Then the truth is always changing like the wind because culture is always changing. And so this crowd shows up, small crowd. Social pressure builds and Peter folds. He shrinks back against the wall as if he's never eaten with the Gentiles. He knows what is right but strays from it ignores it, lives as if he doesn't know. And then verse 13 has to be one of the most sobering verses. If you're a parent in here, this should sober you. If you have any sort of uh, uh, job where you have natural authority over the next generation, this should sober you. If you're living in here, this should sober you because someone is following you. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy and two-faced living is not only destructive to yourself, but it leads others astray. Hypocrisy in the original language means one who puts on a mask, an actor, a showman. Are you an actor this morning? Are you a showman this morning? Did you arrive this morning, walk in those doors with this mask of, I can't, I can't let people know what I really am experiencing. I can't really know, I can't let other people know who I am. I pray that we as a church, the culture around this church, that we are a church that preaches that we are saved by grace and not by works, not by our own awesomeness or lack thereof. And so we would be a people who would walk in grace because we don't have to clean something up because the Lord cleans us up, not ourselves. And so we don't have to pursue hypocrisy or dress ourselves up when we walk into a room. We can say, I'm broken, I'm in need of grace, I'm needy, I'm in need of grace. We would be a people who would live mask-free, not acting, and we would be a people who would pursue holiness in the light of His grace. Hypocrisy, according to verse 13, can lead even stronger believers away. Barnabas, 
Scripture describes Barnabas as a man full, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and many people came to the Lord because of him. And that is written of him or spoken of him before this moment. He's full of the Holy Spirit. So is Peter. Strong believers have the potential to deviate from the truth. That should sober us as well. That should be like, oh, wait, I'm not above that. I'm not beyond that. See, the lie of hypocrisy is you think you're that good of an actor that it doesn't affect anybody else. That you're that, that you are the greatest showman. It won't affect others. Hypocrisy is contagious and, can and cancerous. In churches, in households, in friend circles, in small groups, in ministries. If all you've got around you are fellow hypocrites and actors, it's going to be really hard not to deviate from the truth. If you've got no one around you who's spurring you on, speaking the truth and love to you, who you're walking in the light with, that's a really dangerous, dangerous place to be. We need people in our lives who love us enough to confront us, who will press into our lives, who we've invited to press into our lives. When's the last time you ask a fellow believer, listen, when you see things in my life that are out of step with the truth, would you tell me? And I will not justify it. I will not defend it. When's the last time you ask your spouse that? Your kids that as they get older? Maybe not the toddler. That might go bad. I don't know. I'm working with two teenagers in that mindset, so that's why I say that. When's the last time we ask for that? So we need to invite that because people are naturally nice. Well, not naturally, but they're naturally inclined to be nice. Okay? They're still sin nature. I don't want to. Okay. So they, they will not, most people are not prone to just press right into your lives. Okay? We need to invite that. We need to be people who say, you know what? I need this. I don't, want to, I don't want to stray from the truth. I don't care how long I've been following Jesus. I need people around me to help spur me on, encourage me, and they need me as well. So Paul is not a people pleaser. The last time he was in Antioch, Peter was eating with Gentiles around tables. They were not segregated, separated. He shows up this time and things are radically different. Paul said this in Galatians 1.10, for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. We need to both be and welcome the Pauls in our lives who love us enough to not just tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And in God's providence and goodness, He's going to use Paul and call Paul to confront Peter but when I saw, verse 14, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told all my friends about how Peter was deviating from the truth and, and they affirmed that I was right and Peter was wrong, so I felt better about myself. I took to social media. I, I didn't name any names. I, I just kind of like backhanded, kind of made some vague comments, but everyone probably assumed I was talking about Peter and then people liked my post and I was affirmed in my position. I told my friends to pray for Peter. And I told my friends to tell others to pray for Peter. And I talked about Peter a lot. Never talked to him. Never talked to him. Talked laterally. 
felt affirmed in my stance, but never actually talked to Peter. Praise God it says none of those things. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I'd, I told Cephas in front of everyone. I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that was probably an awkward moment. But if we're going to remain faithful to the gospel, then we're going to have to be willing to step into awkward spaces and places and awkward conversations. And Paul calls him out in front of everyone. Why? Because others were being led astray by his leadership, by his shepherding. And so for the sake of not only Peter, but those who were following him, for the Barnabases and for the Jews from Jerusalem who had arrived, he needs to call this out in front of everyone. He goes on, If you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Paul is telling Peter, listen, you're a Jew and you can't even obey the law. You live like a Gentile, Peter. So how can you compel Jews or how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews when you can't even get it done? We were brought up in law-keeping homes, he's saying, but we know, Peter, that not even our best efforts, not our heritage did not save us, but rather we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the truth of the gospel that you know, Peter. Our hope is no longer in ourselves, but our hope is completely in Jesus and his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. We believed in Jesus, but Peter, you're acting as if you don't believe that anymore. Peter's just flattened this, or Paul is just flattened this whole thing out. Level the playing field. So your background, your social class, your church history, your ethnicity, it doesn't put you at, a, at an advantage to receive God's acceptance or mercy or grace or salvation because, remember, God shows no partiality, no favoritism. Justification by faith alone is at the foundation of the gospel. This is a truth we cannot deviate from. Last year, 2017, was the 500th year uh, anniversary of the Reformation. Some of the key tenets of the Reformation was that salvation was by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It was in response to the idea that the Catholic Church was teaching that somehow you could buy your way out of forgiveness, or you could buy your forgiveness. You could justify yourself through good works and activities on the outside and never having to deal with the inside, let alone it became a financial transaction. To be justified by faith alone is key to the truth of the gospel here in Galatians 2 as much as it is today, as much as it was in 1517. To be justified means you're counted or declared righteous. You've been acquitted of guilt and you are declared guiltless. You didn't have a right standing with God the judge, but now you have a right standing with him and that right standing is given to you through faith rather than through something you work for. Because if it was something we worked for, we would just boast about 
all that we have tried to do. It, was, it would be this endless competition toward an elusive goal of perfection that we would never, ever reach. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago, and he was sharing about an unbelieving friend that he was trying to reach and having conversations with. And, and this other unbelieving friend was saying uh, that, I just believe that if you live with good intentions, then you go to heaven. This person was not using the word justified. But that is what they were saying. If, we just, if I just try to be a good person each day and do more good than bad, then I'll be justified or acceptable to God. It's like a guilty person standing before a judge. They've gotten a speeding ticket, they've stolen something, they've murdered someone, and they say to the judge, listen, I know I've done wrong, but I think I can make it right by doing a lot of good things. Listen, tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm no longer going to have those thoughts. Good luck with that. I'm no longer going to have those intentions. I'm going to do these things instead. But the reality is, is that those good intentions don't negate or cover up the consequences of what has taken place. Martin Luther said to give a short definition of a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer chalks sin because of his faith in Christ. Jesus Christ lived and died to provide our righteousness and bear our punishment. It is by putting our faith in him that we are given his righteousness. His death is counted as ours. Faith unites us to Christ not works. This is the drum that Paul beats throughout Galatians. This is the drum that, be, that he beats throughout the New Testament. He goes on in verse 17. <clears throat> but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. What the world is Paul saying there? Well, he's telling this group, listen, if, if you try to obey the law of Moses... And that's how you try to find yourself justified. We need to die to that belief. But by saying that the law is, is no longer how I'm saved, in that new freedom of grace, is Jesus then saying, Woohoo! Sin away! Who cares what God thinks and says? Who cares what the Bible says? There's grace at the end. Live however you want to live. Live for yourself. Who cares? There's grace! Is Christ promoting sin? That's what the group is asking. And he's like, absolutely not. If you look at the cross, he's not promoting sin. The cross is a brutal reminder of how the Lord views sin. And a incredibly, it's the greatest demonstration of love in the history of humanity. That not only how he views sin, but how he views people who are in need of rescue and redemption. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. So Paul's saying, if I go back to this mindset that I can be justified through the law, if all I do then is I look at the law, look at the rules, every day I'm going to wake up, I'm going to go to bed knowing I fall woefully short, that I am a lawbreaker. For Paul or you or me, 
we cannot get through the Ten Commandments and come out A+, let alone the 600-plus laws of the law of uh, Moses. So none of us get 10 out of 10. Today, you will not get 10 out of 10 today. Like a ladder that was trying to reach heaven is the person who's seeking to be justified through good works. And Paul's saying, I've torn down that ladder. I've torn down this legalistic mindset that outward obedience to the law is somehow going to justify you or resolve this disease of sin in me. So I've died to the law. I'm done with trying to find my justification in my good works, and instead I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as a result, I'm going to live for God. He's been that good to me, and an, an eternal change has happened that has led to a new heart, a new spirit that compels me to live for the one who died and rose again for me and no longer live for myself, no longer make this life about me and make every relationship about me. I'm, going to, I'm not going to live under the crushing weight, he says, this burden of, do I measure up? Am I achieving enough? Have I done enough to be accepted? Does God still love me when I blow it? Is there grace when I stray? That is enslavement. It's exhausting enslavement. Instead, he's going to live in the joyful freedom of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I'm not going to use that freedom to serve me or serve my sin. In verse 20 then, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That doesn't mean that Paul ceases to be Paul. It does mean that Paul has been transformed. The old is gone, the new has come, that he's a new creation in Christ, and Jesus is his authority, his king. So not only did Christ take on our unrighteousness and died, but then he gave us his righteousness so that we can then live in him. Debt and penalty have been removed, but also resurrection power has been given in its place. New life has been given in its place. So not only being uh, me being in Christ, but Christ being in me. Verse 21 then, I do not set aside the grace of God. For, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If a ladder could somehow be built with our own effort, then the cross was meaningless. Then Friday is just a terrible Friday. It's just a meaningless, pointless Friday. It's never a good Friday. So how do we set aside the grace of God? Some of your translations may say we, we nullify the grace of God. So how do we do that? How do we set aside? Well, here's some examples. When we continue in a pattern of sin and rebellion and show no signs of repentance or godly sorrow, we are acting as if the cross is meaningless. It's pointless. When we place ourselves up as greater than others or see other believers as second-class citizens, we are, in a sense, saying we're unwilling to gather around the table with them. We set aside the grace of God when you, when you and I have an awesome day of faithfulness. You ever had some of those? You're like, man, I nailed that. Instead of, God, thank you for your grace and power. Thank you for your presence in my life. And tomorrow morning, Lord, 
I'm going to need it as much as I needed it today. When people ask us what it means to follow Jesus, and all we do is all we do is we talk about these outward things we do, places we go, things we read, activities we're involved in. We never, and when we don't talk about the internal changes and the transformation, we are setting aside the grace of God. We set aside the grace of God when we act like a stranded motorist that you drive by and you need some help. Nope, I got it. I got that. Really? Looks like it's up on blocks. Looks like you might need... No, no, I got it. And when we experience things in our lives and we say that to the Lord, no, I got this. I got our, I got our marriage, Lord. You, you deal with my salvation. I got this. How's that working out for you? Like Dr. Phil, terrible impression. But this is what we do. We set aside the grace of God when we say, no, I got it, whatever it is. Finances, relationships, work, future. We set aside the grace of God when, we, when we're thinking that someone, an unbelieving person, has to get rid of their sin or their habit before coming to Christ. Instead of knowing the truth, it is by coming to Christ that they're able to experience the power to overcome the sin, the habit, the past. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My old creation is gone, it's died. My stiff neck has been broken. My pride has been crushed. My selfish spirit has been pierced with nails. My stony heart has been slain and now my life is not my own. Jesus is who remains. He has arisen in my life, and for the rest of my life, I will not set aside the grace of God, but that grace will compel and empower me to live the life the Lord has called me and designed me to live. We are lawbreakers, and the judge has made a way possible for us to be saved through the substitutionary death of Jesus, through faith alone and by grace alone. We are united both to his death and the life of Jesus, free from our past sin through the, um, <clears throat> with uh, union in, in death and then given a new life through union, through faith, to the resurrection life. Notice how personal this, this is to Paul, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved us long before we knew him. He loved us in the cross. He loved us by coming to this earth and being born and dwelling among us. He loved us before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians 1.4 would tell us. Spurgeon said of that quote, or of that verse, take those blessed, I love this, take those blessed words of the apostle and put them in your mouth and let them lie there as wafers made with honey till they melt into your very soul who loved me and gave himself for me who loved me and gave himself for me. Here in a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. I pray for those who are in Christ and believers in him that as we take communion, that we would savor those sweet words who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not out of the, question, out of the question that at the time, around those tables in Antioch, that they would also not only eat meals together, but they would break bread and, uh, and celebrate communion together. 
And so Peter had pushed himself away from that table. But in communion, we are reminded that it's no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, but those who are in Christ, trusting in Christ, are encouraged to come to the table so we might remember, so we might uh, worship. And so if you're a believer in Christ, you're welcome and invited and called to take communion this morning. God shows no partiality, and in Christ we are one, one family, one body, one flock, one temple, one new people who have been saved and are being transformed by the grace of God day by day. Our first impressions team are going to begin handing out the trays. Make sure you get both the top and bottom cup, and then we will take the elements together as one family, one body, one flock afterwards together. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. The worship team could come back up. Father, we, uh, as your people, we do not want to set aside or nullify the grace of God. We don't want to live in a way that um, is out of step with the truth. We are grateful that we are saved through faith and not through works. Thank you for the freedom that that brings. Thank you how that, how that sets us free and, and breaks chains of enslavement. And where we are tempted to, to deviate or stray from justification by faith alone, I pray that you would expose that in us and remind us that it is by grace. Remind us of your sacrifice and your love this week. Moment by moment, day by day, when we are tempted to forget or set aside, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to keep the grace of God right in front of us. To fix our eyes on you. We can look at Peter's life and we can see that when he took his eyes off of you, that's when he sank. That's when he denied. But when he fixed his eyes on you, Lord, You empowered him to live a life that was glorifying to you and impactful to others. And so help us as your people to fix our eyes on you and set aside the the things that would entangle us. God, we worship you for your grace and your mercy and we exalt you and we honor you and we want to be a people who live for the one who died and rose again for us and no longer for ourselves. So help us to do that this week. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand up and worship. As we close, I want to read uh, Galatians 2.20 together, so if you can go back to that slide. Um, as, you, uh, as you depart, uh, make sure you can, you can sign up for that Euchre tournament back at Guest Connections, but uh, together as a church, I just want to read verse 20. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You're dismissed. Have a good week.